Hello, this is Chris Prayer here, and this is my wife, Uncle Andrew's fairy godmother, Kristen. And welcome to the second official episode of our podcast, Chronically, colon, Narnia, a podcast where we take each chapter of the Chronicles of Narnia series uh, chronologically and analyze them and dissect them and talk about them uh, in ways that they were probably never really intended to be discussed. Uh, we have fun with it, so we're going to just jump right in. Uh, this is chapter two of the book called, and what is that? Diggory and His Uncle. Diggory and His Uncle. So the way we like to do this is... Chapter title for this chapter is the reverse of the uh, book title. We're starting in a very interesting place. So the book title was The Uncle and His Diggory? It's The Magician's Nephew. Okay. Uh, got it. Forgot what we were reading for a second. That's a very <laughs> different book. So the way we like to do this is... To start off with, we will take a few sentences between three and five that we feel like kind of exemplify the chapter that we read and read them in order and kind of get a, a bearing on what we feel like the chapter was all about and what the central themes were. All right. So, uh, well, I started last time, so maybe it's your turn to start. Okay. But we have our sentences that we've chosen, and these are sentences... Three to five sentences to explain the story of this chapter, just to catch someone up. This is our 30-second recap, if you will, our three to five sentence summary. Okay, we've said three to five sentences like four times now. Yes. Is that three I, to five sentences? I don't know, because I have six, and I want it to include a sixth sentence. Okay. I can leave it off, but I really think that it's important to the plot. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and read my sentences. Okay. In no particular order, in this... Uh... You're supposed to You're supposed to tell the plot. Well, yeah. In order to tell the plot, you have to tell them in order. Well, I suppose so. Uh, so these are in order... You are completely <laughs> missing the point. So this is, this is chronological order. So we have number one. The little girl's gone. Vanished. Right out of the world. Well, it depends what you call wrong. All I can say is even if you are my uncle is that you've behaved like a coward, sending a girl to a place you're afraid to go yourself. Well, I've never read a story in which people of that sort weren't paid out in the end, and I bet you will be. And he thought then, as he always thought afterward, too, that he could not decently have done anything else. So you had an interesting statement uh, in yours. Now, I'm going to read my sentences before we actually dig in and discuss these sentences. But you okay. had an interesting statement that you made that your sentences were chronological. Yes. I felt for my sentences, and I, I went I went out of, uh, I, I broke my mold from my last sentences. I actually took sentences from various parts of the chapter to build the plot of the book, but my sentences are not in book chronology. Well, okay. So, that said. You're just jumping ahead of the curve right now. You know, I... I it was more effective to communicate what I was trying to do for the plot. Like, to, to take... All right, sentence one. One doesn't become a magician for nothing. Okay, good. Yeah. Think what another world means. You might meet anything. Anything. And all I can say, he added... 
even if you are my uncle, is that you've behaved like a coward, sending the little girl to a place you're afraid to go yourself. And it's exactly the same as if you'd murdered her. Well, said Uncle Andrew with a chuckle, it depends what you call wrong. So unlike chapter one, we chose And if I include a sixth sentence, (sighs) then he buttoned up his coat, took a deep breath, and picked up the ring. That's fun. That could be a line out of The Hobbit. It could! Uh, (laughs) Um, And now we enter our Hobbit Lord of the Rings (laughs) crossover section. That's next. That's the next series. Okay. So, uh, See, I thought that was our new segment. Unlike the first chapter, we chose two of the same sentences, which I think was interesting. Me too! I was kind of excited, because yeah. the first time I expected us to pick at least one sentence in common. We did not. And I, I almost was trying not to this time, and we still stumbled into it. So the two sentences we had in common were the one about uh, Diggory being like, yeah, you're a bastard, and you're a coward, and you, you sent this little girl somewhere you wouldn't go yourself. Uh which I think is a great character moment for Diggory. And, like, there's a lot of character building for Diggory in this chapter. There really is. I think that when I read the chapter, I went through and I sur- and I marked all of Diggory's dialogue. Because Digg- Diggory, in this chapter, the majority of his dialogue is in question form. Mm-hmm. And it's not only, like, well, what just happened... But it also moves into uh, questioning and challenging motives, reasons, and also like problem solving. Where instead of just being like, well, what kind of questions can I ask about this, you know, attic that we're playing in? Uh-huh. He, his questioning goes into like deep challenging of his uncle and asking him what it means, where's Polly, what's happened. I think that it's interesting that the few sentences that Diggory does utter that are not questions are direct challenges. You've behaved as a coward. Uh I wish I could punch you in the head. Like, these kind of sentences are what Diggory is saying to his uncle in a direct challenge to his uncle. You behaved quite cruelly. Uh You know, um... It's exactly as if you'd murdered her. Um, You know, and challenging Uncle Andrew's even knowledge. You don't know if I can get back. Like, he's he's not only, he's like challenging. So, yes, sorry. I agree with you. I'm giving textual support. I've taken over your point to give you textual support for your point. You can now make your point. Okay. So my point was that... uh... Diggory has a lot of character development in this chapter. Yeah. Uh, more so than the first one, obviously. He becomes more of a character. And just the balls on this kid <laughs> uh, is kind of the first point I wanted to make because I don't know about you, but were I in the situation where I had this creepy uncle who lived in the attic and, like, was very secretive and, you know, you hear screams coming from his office in the middle of the night and things like that. And then no, you... To be fair, you would have screamed, too, if you saw a guinea pig disappear. I, I would have. I would have been very sad. Uh, you would have screamed in sadness. <sighs> yep. It's a very sad scream. <laughs> you don't want to hear what that sounds like. Uh, but, and then, we're like, with, with much ado about nothing, 
uh, he suddenly finds out that this uncle is also basically a wizard. And, and magic's real. Magic is real. Fairies are real. Atlantis was real. And I don't know about you, but like, were I in the position where I encountered a real life wizard? Guinea would... pigs can explode. Yes, we'll we'll get to the exploding guinea pigs, uh, but I would not. My first reaction would immediately not be to be like, "Hey, warlock, I'm gonna punch you in the face." <laughs> uh, I don't have that much courage. It's but <laughs> I mean, it's also him saying, "If I was if I was bigger, I would do this." Yeah. It's him acknowledging his own powerlessness in the entire situation as well, uh-huh. which is a huge character like leap from the kid that we met in chapter one whose powerlessness overwhelmed him to the point where he wasn't afraid to let anyone know how, how broken he was by this. Mm-hmm. Just the stranger's kid next door jumps up and says, your name's weird, and he's like, my mom is dying. You now have someone who is in a situation where he has just as much powerlessness and he's still sitting there being like, I wish I was big enough to punch you in the head. Mm-hmm. So I'll reiterate the point uh, for those of you who haven't been following us since the first episode. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome. Cheers. But I have not uh, previously read uh, most of these books and The Magician's Nephew is, uh, this is the first time I'm reading through it. But Kristen, as someone who has read it multiple times. Once. Once. Barely once. I thought you read it like four I read times. chapter one four times. Oh, okay. I have read this book well, one time. Chapter one's very compelling. Um, you know. But as someone who has read through it once, is this foreshadowing to like an epic wizard duel that comes in a later novel? If you were paying attention <laughs> in the first episode, you would know that I remember all of four sentences worth of content of this book. And I feel like that would be a memorable thing. I don't know. <laughs> I have no memory of that. Okay. Well, you didn't even know about the, the wood between worlds, but that's not in this chapter. We'll get to that. That's, that's the a title. It's a teaser. teaser for next week. Next week we'll be <sighs> reading the chapter, The Wood Between the Worlds. If you're following along in the book, you probably saw that coming. Uh, so this is a two-character chapter. This is this entire thing is a conversation between Diggory and his uncle Andrew. However, it also introduces m- other characters. Mm-hmm. It in- or, well other people. It introduces uh, Uncle Andrew's fairy godmother. Yeah. It introduces other the the fact that other magicians exist. Apparently. Um, because Uncle Andrew talks about, like, the, the Cretans that he had to interact with in order to learn his magics. Yeah. And it also explores further the relationship that Diggory has with his mother. That Diggory is fearful for his mother's life to the point where he's afraid to frighten her on something. Right. And it also... Uncle Andrew references Mrs. Plummer next door. So he clearly knows his next door neighbor, the mother of Polly. So all of these characters are also referenced in this chapter. But yes, as a structural chapter, it is just a conversation between two people. And it is very expositional. And it's just this conversation between two people. You said a lot of other characters are mentioned. Uh, I... I'm not sure if this is like an intentional narrative choice, but I did find it was interesting that all of the other characters mentioned 
by name in this chapter are women. Every single one of them. Yes, I was going to make this point. Uh Every single other character mentioned in this chapter that has a name is a woman. Uh It almost passes the Bechdel test, except that none of them talk, (laughs) Uh and none of them talk to each other. Uh And all of the elements that require it to pass the Bechdel test. There are multiple named female characters in this chapter. For those who don't know what the Bechdel test is, it is a... Or let Chris explain it. So the Bechdel test, as an aside, is this idea that smart people came up with. I really... Sit See, and this is why I didn't want to explain no, it I because got, I don't want I it forever emblazoned in audio digits that I cannot explain this. I can explain feasibly. the concept. I just don't know who came up with it. Yeah, I don't yeah. know who came up with it. All I know is that it is to test whether or not a movie stands up to the Bechdel test. Is that more than one named female character? Yes, has to be in conversation with another named female character. Yes. And that those two characters have to talk about something that is not a man. Correct. So That's the idea. My husband, the good feminist, um, that he is. I try. Can't explain this better than I can, and I can barely explain it. We're going to cut this. Yep. Okay. So, uh, do you think that is a narrative... Uh, choice that's made with purpose do you think that c.s lewis intended that or is it just happenstance that it came out that way oh man i don't know what i don't know i don't know i think that there is definitely an element to this and that every other character who's referenced is either like in the entire book to this point diggory has mentioned his father and his uncle Mm -hmm. and then diggory and his uncle have been present but there is just this this challenge that exists where Uncle Andrew says, "Oh, you're a child who was raised by women. You would naturally believe these old folk tales and fairy tales where the bad guy gets it in the end, and that I'm some kind of bad guy." While at the same time, he's like, "I've got a fairy godmother. Yeah, and, and she was the last fairy, and she gave me a box of dirt from Atlantis, and I made these pretty rings out of it." Because she was great. Kristen's uh, Uncle Andrew impression that she's been working on for weeks now. <laughs> I've got a fairy godmother! So yeah, Uncle Andrew in this chapter is uh, kind okay. of a misogynist. Yes, but and, before we move into that, you asked if this was a narrative choice yes. on the on the behalf of the author. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, Do you think that he is using these other characters to emphasize the misogyny that he is clearly betraying an Uncle Andrew? Or do you think that this is laying a groundwork for further on in the story when they're, you know, to for us to be on the lookout for other female characters? Um, as someone who is an aspiring author myself, uh, not anywhere near C.S. Lewis's caliber, so I can't really speak to his... Uh... You don't have to push up your glasses four times. <laughs> Once will do. Not wearing glasses, but thank you. So, as someone who writes, uh, again, not at the caliber of Lewis, I'm very much a fan of, you know, the whole argument that the curtains are sometimes just blue. Because I know when I am writing a chapter and, you know, 
there was a detail like all the named characters are women, that wouldn't have been intentional on my part. Yes, it that went, wouldn't have been intentional, but I am very much Bartian in that I believe that the author is dead. Once the work has been created, other people are welcome to bring meaning to it and to take meaning from it in a way that I don't get to say anything about mm -hmm. as the author. I have written poems and things and had people read them and get their feedback and comments. I wrote this one particular poem that was about a relationship that had fallen apart. Yeah. And it was talking about how just like the two people didn't work together. And... The person who read it sent me their notes and they just said to me, you really probably should have warned me before sending me a poem about suicide. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. where'd you get suicide in that? Because there's there's nothing in that about suicide. To me, it's about two people who fell out of, out of relationship with each other, uh -huh. who just couldn't make the relationship work. But when I read my own poem... Through the lens of suicide, it meant it, it, it was there and it came to life for me in a new way. And even me as the author, I was able to bring new meaning to my own writing uh -huh. and take something new from it. And I feel like that is the beauty of the creative impulse and the beauty of creation as it stands. So saying, yeah, the curtains are just blue. I only wanted the curtains to be blue. They're just blue. But... Then you take that into like some kind of external culture and you're saying, I'm blue, da ba dee da ba da da ba dee da ba da This can be a recurring segment. And within that element, you have more information coming into this discussion about what it means to have blue curtains because blue his house with a blue little window and a blue Corvette. But... We've got one of those out. I'm not sure which one. The one where I was trying to sing. Uh-huh. So, yes, you as the author can not intend to have this be something that you created. Yes. That all of these characters are women. But that doesn't mean it's without meaning. Yes, but then the meaning becomes subjective to the reader. And so when you're looking at it from a literary analysis perspective and saying, okay, well, this is what C.S. Lewis intended to say with the book. Who that's cares? Irre that's irrelevant. It is irrelevant. That's what I said. Because a, a detail like all the, all the characters mentioned being female, maybe that wasn't intentional. We can derive meaning from that, but that's not something that Lewis was trying to say. So it's, it's meaningless to the plot of the book. Okay, so... When you then take this book, and I'm trying not to give away anything about what I know about what happens later in this book. Uh -huh. So let's take this book and view it in, in the light of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is a book that you are much more familiar with. Okay. Primary villain in that book mm -hmm. is a woman. Yes. The first person to go to Narnia and explore Narnia is a little girl. Yep. And she has to convince her siblings to come with her. But it's an allegory for Eve and, you know, original sin. Yes. <laughs> well, like, and you can argue all of that. But you also have to consider that the White Witch is the primary villain and has this entire realm of Narnia under her thumb uh -huh. in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The primary villain is this woman who, when she does deceive one of the children into betraying his siblings... 
um, with the Turkish delights is doing it in a very maternal way. She's taking him in from the cold. She's giving him what he wants and meeting his needs that he has. All very feminine characteristics of yeah. this typical woman character as she would have been written in this time frame. At some point and, we should uh, do a side episode where we like read a Lewis biography and just uh, no, determine if he has like mother issues or not. <laughs> We're going to give, give Lewis a, a Freud sit down. Yeah. And so when you then take into consideration that in the greater scheme of these stories mm -hmm. that female characters are primary elements, they're primary movers, mm -hmm. they're drivers of the plot. They're shakers. Shakers and Quakers. Gonna, gonna shake things up. Yep. So as these women move the plot forward and are primary anchors of the plot and drivers of the plot, reversing my metaphors here and mixing them all up, uh -huh. you then have to also consider that it is possible that this book, which was written after those, was very intentional in his decisions to portray women in a specific way. Yeah. Because he has the woman as the child explorer, the uh -huh. woman as the unbelieving sister, the pragmatist, and the woman as the villain with this maternal betrayal in his first book in the series. Is the godmother the villain, though? The godmother? I'm talking was... about the White Witch, and I'm talking about Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. No, but we're going back to that you're saying the woman as the betrayer in the first book. I thought you were referring to this one. No. Okay. Never I'm mind. saying the first book that he wrote. Oh, okay. I thought you meant... I yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking... No, no. I'm saying we have to consider this book... Yes. No, 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 no. We are reading these in the wrong yeah. order. I've made this very clear. Okay. The first book is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah. That is the first book. Mm -hmm. So, if you take all of that into consideration of what you know of female characters in Lewis's previous books in this series, yeah. and then you come to this one, you do have to consider that this was an intentional choice on his part because you have the mother as this woman in downstairs who's sick and needs to be cared for you have the woman as the the sage mistress imparter of wisdom the godmother yeah who would try to protect uncle andrew from what she discovered and uncle andrew decided to disregard her wisdom and you have the damsel in distress that is polly driving the decision of diggory to come after her and save her Correct. And as your last sentence that you had was... My last sentence was the last sentence in the chapter. And he thought then, as he always thought afterwards, too, that he could not decently have done anything else. Hey, look, you wrote that down. That was the sentence you were going to use for something as well. Yep. Okay. So, this whole chapter takes place within the span of, let's say, like 10 minutes. Like, it's a very very narrow window of time yes. and it's just this conversation uh let's talk about character development for uncle andrew oh yeah uncle andrew. we talked about diggory a lot yeah so. let's talk about uncle andrew uncle andrew is just spilling the tea on his whole life right now <laughs> being like hey i'm gonna tell you what's up uh -huh. i'm a learned man of things 
And here's all of the things that I know. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Yes. Aliens. We could go to other planets. But I'm talking about going to other worlds. Other universes. Yes. You know, other planets are just too small time for Uncle Andrew. True. All right. I want to I want to asterisk that and come back to that discussion about sci-fi, other okay. worlds and universes and the multiverse. But coming back to Uncle Andrew's character development, tell me your thoughts cuz I had a lot to say on Diggory in support of your point. Uh-huh. I'm not going to interrupt you talk about Uncle Andrew for a bit. Uh so we know Uncle Andrew is a bastard uh from the first like the first introduction of him in the first chapter in the last few paragraphs where he locks the kids in the room and is like, oh, hey, just what I wanted, two children, and your aunt can't get to you, isn't this lovely? And that is his character introduction, and it goes, uh, I wouldn't say quickly downhill, but steadily downhill, uh, where I don't think he has any redeeming qualities that come up in this chapter. And, like, the dialogue he does have, he's unapologetically a bastard. He's just like, yeah, I'll use children. Try to... a different word. Other than bastard? Yeah, because you've described him that way like four times. Uh, it's I'm just accurate. trying to get you into a thesaurus. He's unapologetically a knave and a ne'er-do-well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, broke up my thesaurus for that one. Um, and... He's like, yeah, I'll send little kids off into this place. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm doing an experiment. Like, how, how else am I supposed to find this stuff out? Yeah, I exploded a couple guinea pigs. What's that? It's, I mean, Rude. Yeah. That's what it is. Uh, Rude. And he very much is of the opinion that he's absolutely right. And this is the only way that he can learn things and, you know, find out about the mysteries of the cosmos. And he'll go to any length to accomplish that. He also hates. The idea of being thought of as the monster that he is. Because when Diggory challenges him and uh -huh. says that you're going to get your due in the end, mm -hmm. he, the, the text says that you could, he, the look on his face, you could almost feel sorry for him. Yeah. Well, I mean, most, most good literary villains don't believe they're evil. So you're saying so. he's a good literary villain? Uh, <laughs> I'm saying he's being set up that way. Okay. He's certainly not a protagonist of the story. Uh, I feel like Lewis tries to introduce some like sympathetic reasoning behind him in this a little bit. Well, you have to if you're going to have a character who's like being a monster to children. Yeah. And you want children to be able to read this story. <laughs> you have to set it up in a way that the adults can explain this person's behavior to their children. Yeah. So let's talk about... Uh, Uncle Andrew's blatant misogyny is... Oh, <laughs> So, here's the real question, and this is, like, getting down to the meat of uh, this, this 1956 piece of literature, in this chapter at least. How much of this is, you know, a sign of the times? And this is just, you know, parlance for, for 1950s British dialogue. And how much of this is Lewis intentionally trying to paint Andrew as a jerk who, you know, hates children and women? 
That's a, I mean, that's a fair question. You're trying to place this text within a cultural context. Yeah. You also have to consider that this is someone writing in 1956, 10 years post-World War II, and... Well, in the time frame the conversation is set in is The time frame, that's Victorian where I was going. Yeah. Interrupter of things. And so you also have to then take into consideration that this is a man writing in 1956 about turn-of-the-century people. Mm-hmm. And so... Like, what level of self-criticism is he applying to his own culture? Uh-huh. Um, is he trying to actively paint this person as an accurate representation of what an Uncle Andrew would have been at that time? That yeah. he didn't remember, <laughs> as Lewis didn't remember himself? Yeah. Or was he trying to create a character that was distasteful? as a misogynist to his audience of the day. Yeah. I have to say, like, as C.S. Lewis wrote the female characters who are strong female characters, and there are some some not great moments for female characters in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but having looked at the characters briefly, as I did, that were female that had strong roles in that um, in that first book, we then kind of can inform our reading of this book as to yeah he's not talking positively about women you we have to also consider that you know yeah this is an informed reading of this text says c.s lewis writes strong female characters and shows respect to the strengths of female characters not perfectly but he does which means that it is a narrative choice to have this kind of misogyny make it onto the page. Uh-huh. And so I do feel like it's a choice to make Uncle Andrew this kind of character. But I also think that it's an ironic uh, juxtaposition where you have this man who is so ardently like misogynistic and yet the only person that he respects and praises and receives information from as worthy of his study is his fairy godmother. Uh-huh. And he's like, she she didn't like people either, just like me. And she had, you know, fairy blood in her, one of only, you know, three people that I've ever heard of who might have. And she was possibly the, I, I'm possibly the last person ever in this country to have had a fairy godmother. And he yeah. he's insane. He's talking about fairies, like, and you also then take that reading of Uncle Andrew from Diggory's eyes and inform it as Diggory was just talking with Polly in chapter one. Is he really mad? Yeah. Is Mister Ketterly really mad? And if she had just overheard this conversation about fairy godmothers and other universes, she would have been like, "Yep, he's mad." <laughs> Uh-huh. But that is a fun story, just like saying that there's pirates next door. Uh-huh. So that's my feminist rant. <laughs> I No, I definitely think that it's an intentional choice to make this character distasteful by making him a misogynist. Okay. I think that the fact that Diggory is driven by Polly's adventurous nature... 
alone is a demonstration of of a driving female character like Diggory is rescued from his wallowing by Polly. Uh-huh. So at this point, Polly has done all of the rescuing, all of the damsel straight and saving mm-hmm. that has happened in this book so far has all been Polly coming in to the rescue right. to save Diggory from wallowing in his depression and despair and fear that his mother is going to die and providing him with an outlet of creative exercise. And she has done that with a level of separation from him without sharing with him her own intimate stories and her own creative uh, instincts. Like, he, she won't show him the, the stories that she's writing. Uh-huh. So then you put that character, Diggory, who's been saved by Polly, into the position where he has to go save Polly. And he is going to go do it. And it's, and it's as much friendship as it is reciprocation. And I think that that's important to bring into this, too, to say it's not even chauvinistic to be like, yeah, now the guy has to go save the girl. When in chapter one, the girl came in and saved the guy. Uh-huh. So it's a it's a reversal at that point. So that was your feminist friend. I don't that one just <laughs> came out of me. That one wasn't the one I wrote down. OK, have we we have yet to get to the one you wrote down? <laughs> Oh, okay. No, the really the thing that I really wanted to hit on in this chapter had nothing to do with feminism. Okay. Uh, The thing that I really wanted to hit on in this chapter was this um, kind of introduction of sci-fi concepts. I'll just be over here. What? Let's see. Let's see. Ask me a question that I didn't get the answer. Go ahead. Answer the question. Okay, so what was my question again? I don't know. You can you can team me up really quick. I have no idea. Uh, what was the question? So we were talking about character development. Uh, <laughs> Uncle Andrew's character development. I, I appreciate that you're so passionate about these topics <laughs> and have things to say. Uh, yes, Uncle Andrew's character development. Uh, but overall, kind of we address the. You know, the narrative decision to... And I'm using the word narrative a lot uh, because it works. And I need to crack open the thesaurus again. We should have that be a regular segment where, like, Chris cracks open the thesaurus and, you know... Only learns, if you can say thesaurus. ...learns how to pronounce the word thesaurus, which is... <laughs> which is the most difficult dinosaur. Anyway. <laughs> so, we've talked about this decision to have Uncle Andrew just be, you know... A vile creature. Um, and I'm trying to come up with uh, some redeeming qualities because we mentioned that they they should be there. He has this appreciation for his fairy godmother, and you know has this fondness for his childhood. I suppose that comes through a little bit. Not but for his childhood, because yeah. I would say that this this feels like a story told about an a young adult but even then you you have this moment where he brings up this woman and i if i forget the fairy godmother's name what is her name how could you I, what's her name miss lefay okay you know uh, i think uh-huh give me the book we can have this segment wait 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 you stopped the record you stopped the record. We had to do research. I had to open the book. 
I was still talking. That was good content you just skipped. Great content. Yes. I said we should have a recurring segment where Kristen goes to the text. So like Miss LaFay. Mrs. Mrs. LaFay. So like Morgan LaFay. I don't know who that is. This could also be a recurring segment where Chris references people Kristen doesn't know. Uh, from mythology, Morgan Le Fay was a... Oh, because Faye has to do with the Fay folk. And she's from... She's a fairy. The Fay folk. Yeah. She's a Fay. That's not where I was going with that. But okay, yes, but sorry, point. I just had a moment of realization <laughs> that that uh-huh. name was one of those representative names. Yeah. Which is probably why I could remember it. Morgan Le Fay, go ahead. Uh, it's from mythology. And she was a magical person that was associated with Merlin and King Arthur's court and all those things. So kind of, you know, a sorceress in that time frame. It probably, I mean, knowing C.S. Lewis's knowledge of mythology and, and other such things, it, like it probably is a direct reference to Morgan Le Fay. In some way. But the wordplay is nice, too. Um, so, yeah, not even his childhood, but what was the point I was getting at? He's, I was getting at that he talks fondly about this person, and he's nostalgic, but at the same time, he's just like, oh, it was, you know, my godmother's dying wish that I don't open this box and I get rid of it. And, and burn I didn't it do that. With, with certain ceremony. Yeah. Burn it, get rid of it, don't open it, and oh, I'm not going to do that. That's that's nonsense. Yes. I'm a learned man. Yes. And Diggory challenges him on that and says, well, that was dumb. Like, that was rotten of you. And Uncle Andrew goes, rotten? He's confused. Oh, I see. You think little boys should obey their promises. Yes, they should. But that doesn't apply to me. I'm a learned man. Yeah. That applies to servants and children and women. And even common folk. Does he say he even says common even folk? like even the common people. I don't know. Something like Something that. Something like that. Whatever. <laughs> He's a pig. Yeah. So, uh I'm not sure there's a lot that we haven't covered as far as the chapter goes. Like we said, it was a very short, like, ten-minute conversation. Not a lot happens as far as plot development goes or action. Uh, the end of the chapter, we have Diggory putting on the ring and... No, don't forget our lesson in colors and spelling. Because green <laughs> is in the right pocket. G-R. G for green. R for right. It's the first two letters of green. Uh-huh. Sorry. Continue. Which I'm going to keep waiting in, in subsequent chapters for Diggory to meet a hobbit who just asks them, what's in your pocket? <laughs> what have I got <laughs> in my pocket? Uh-huh. So this is the first revelation of magic. You have Uncle Andrew not only claiming that magic exists, but also that he is a magician. Which I feel like magician is a very strong word for what we've seen so far. I would say that Uncle Andrew is an artificer. <laughs> also, the title of the book is The Magician's Nephew. Anyway. I also wrote Atlantis. I feel like he 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 brings up these mythologies. Magic, magicians, Atlantis, fairies. Yeah. And he's mixing and matching, like, even within the realm of fantasy. Yeah, so... 
there's the that brings up one last point about all grand drew i kind of want to get to uh before we rework the chapter and all that and that is we we had polly put on the ring and polly disappears we know something happens we know that uncle andrew is not you know totally full of malarkey something happened something like something out of the ordinary happened so we know that to that end uh, Uncle Andrew probably has some degree of credibility, but is Uncle Andrew an unreliable narrator? Uncle Andrew's not a narrator. Give me the book. There are two sentences in this chapter that refer to, that 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 reframe the perspective. Okay. The last sentence of this chapter, and I believe it's the second sentence, uh, second paragraph. So we have this moment that Uncle Andrew dives at Diggory to cover his mouth and 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 basically says, don't frighten your mother, you she'll know what die. it could do. Yeah, she'll die. He threatens her. And the second paragraph says, as Diggory said afterwards, the horrible meanness of getting at a chap in that way almost made him sick. But of course he didn't scream. So that, that sentence there, as Diggory said afterwards... Which means Diggory clearly survives this encounter, yes. gets into the future, and this is the narrator remarking on the story that he's telling with the information that Diggory has told him. So oh, yes. someone is writing this story that Diggory has told them. Then we come to the last chapter, or the last sentence Which in I the chapter. Which one of my sentences. I'm and familiar. he thought then, as he always thought afterwards too. Both of them have the word afterwards in them. Yeah. Um, and this is that shift of perspective that he could not decently have done anything else. Yeah. So these two sentences bookend the chapter, and they both show this perspective shift of an of a narrator who is telling the story that Diggory told him. Well, my point wasn't that Andrew is a narrator of the story. Is he a reliable narrator of the events of his own life? Oh no. Should we believe anything about Atlantis or the fairy godmother or any of it? I mean, somehow he got this box of sand from somewhere. He got some kind of element from this other world somewhere that he was able to create these rings with. I'm just saying that should we take all the fantastical elements that are introduced right now at face value? Right Atlantis now. Atlantis and fairies and... I mean... Is all that necessarily true? As Diggory as the audience... He just watched someone disappear. Yes. And Uncle Andrew acknowledges that, like, the first time the guinea pig disappeared, it scared him. Uh And he was, like, loud enough that from the attic he was heard. Yeah. So, with that said, we have to also be, like, Diggory is taking this at face value because of the fact that it is this scenario where he just witnessed something that could only be explained by magic. Yeah. I mean... How else would this have happened? Well, I mean, we also know it's magic because of the events of the rest of the book. But... Yeah, the rest of the series, we know that magic exists. So when we are informing this as the prequel book to a series that exists with magic in it, yeah, magic exists. But in that story, magic has not existed within this world. The only magic that has existed within this world is a callback to Narnia or a doorway to Narnia. So magic has not been something that exists within this world until this moment. 
And so I I don't know. Like even informing that by the rest of the rest of the series. Which that's that's a whole like interesting philosophical discussion we'll get into as we go through the books, I'm sure. Uh that I don't want to jump into right now. Uh but really quickly if you want to go into your thing about uh sci fi. So what I wanted to say was just that there is a moment in which Uncle Andrew says, you know, we could go to other planets if they're far enough, you know, if we're, if we go, if we go far enough. So when we <laughs> read this and he talked about going to other planets, the first thing that I thought of was, when, when did this book come out? When, what kind of sci-fi was existing at this time? And then I had to go back and look at C.S. Lewis's own writings and this book is almost 20 years after he published Out of the Silent Planet, which is a clear sci-fi book in which someone ends up on a rocket ship going to Mars. Yeah. And, like, so it's clearly, you know, it's an, and it's an allegorical story, but it very clearly is a sci-fi universe with a rocket ship that has some kind of artificial gravity going to Mars and landing on Mars, and there's aliens on Mars who are creatures that are very fantastical in this same kind of mythical fairy tale way mm -hmm. that Narnia becomes later. And so this author then 10 years later is writing this book being like, no, 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 you're thinking sci-fi. This is not sci-fi. This is magic. And it's another world. But you brought up the point of, historical context where this conversation is happening in turn of the century England and at that point does does this concept exist to someone like Diggory like, yeah I mean like is when, when Uncle Andrew's like well we could get to other planets if we went far enough yeah. is that blowing Diggory's mind like we could probably yeah we could get to other planets I mean this like is... you're someone just disappeared in front of me you're talking about your fairy godmother, and you're telling me we can go to other planets? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we're going to other universes? Yeah. Like, at this point in time, the rocket hadn't been invented yet. So, I mean... See, I thought yeah. Sputnik was, like, this all-inclusive, like, fear in the past. Yep. Sputnik was so revolutionary that it sent ripples backward in time. It was! <laughs> It did. Don't you understand <laughs> temporal dynamics? Uh, no. Time is fluid. Does anyone? There are ripples in time. Okay. <laughs> so we do this thing where after we've thoroughly dissected the chapter that we read, we try to take lines from it and retell the story or completely come up with a new story using only lines and dialogue that is within the chapter itself. In the first episode... We restricted ourselves to reorganizing the sentences that we originally chose. And I believe I subbed out one sentence in the first episode for a different one. But either way, we, we were working primarily off of sentences that we already chose and we reorganized them. Yeah, not doing that this time. My sentences don't in any way work. Uh, <laughs> at least I'm not creative enough for that. So... So what we've done this time is to go back and take a second set of sentences that we are writing a new story out of. This was 
so much more challenging than I expected it to be. I mean, yes, it really was because you have to remove yourself from the story that you read and the story that you're actively reading, trying to select sentences and structure a new diet, a new um, narrative. Yeah, I think that that's the word I was looking for. (laughs) I really do. You go first. All right. So this is my reimagining of this chapter. And uh, I think much like the first chapter, I'm trying to add an air of mystery to this, uh, but I'll just jump into it. I was learning a good deal in other ways about magic in general. But you are a beast. Some of them only died. Some of them exploded like little bombs. A lot you care. But I'm sick of this jaw. What have I got to do? Congratulate me, my dear boy. What, what was your intention going into that? My intention going into it was to change the main character. Mm-hmm. Where and make it about Uncle Andrew. Making it about Uncle Andrew. And making him be, you know, this powerful wizard that has come up with this grand experiment. So and Diggory is just the, you know, the apprentice or the assistant or the willing witness to this, whatever he's doing, that we don't know. So you're taking all of Uncle Andrew's self-love and creating it into its own story. Yes, this grandiose story of this is why I'm the hero and, you know, my methods might be macabre and dark and, you know, unpalatable, but I'm doing something that's uh, a a scientific endeavor and it's worth doing. Mm, Congratulate me, my boy. Congratulate me. Mm. Uh, I was trying to turn it into kind of a Frankenstein story. So how does this reading of your story about Uncle Andrew inform your reading of the text as we've already read it and the discussion that we've already had as Uncle Andrew as this self-important Frankenstein? Uh, I mean, like I said earlier, I feel like, uh, you know, like Dr. Frankenstein, every evil character, at least the one that's, that are written well, believes they're doing good mm-hmm. and believes they're, they're in the right and they're not evil. And I think Uncle Andrew is no different. Like, he sees nothing wrong with sending, you know, the little girl off to this world that he doesn't want to visit because, you know, who would carry on the experiment if he died? Like, this is knowledge. This is something bigger than him. Mm-hmm. The world needs to know these things. So, how about, how about your story? Are you ready? Ours, my boy, is a high and lonely destiny. Leave the girl to be eaten by wild animals. The truth is... She was one of the last mortals in this country who had fairy blood in her. But you are a beast. And he thought then, as he always thought afterwards too, that he could not have decently he could not decently have done anything else. Interesting. I think I like yours better. Like you went through a very like a you're going for more of a fantasy type thing. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. So mine is. Uh, reading it right now just like gave me weird like a little red riding hood vibes and i don't know why uh-huh. but but cause i think it's the it's i think it's the word beast and the idea of being eaten by wild animals um but i just love this idea of talking about ours is ours my boy is a high and lofty destiny i think yours flows really well mine mine as i was writing it was very much intended to be this idea of like this great war between the mortals and the fairies. 
Like, honestly, that was where I, like, when I, when I got my inspiration spark, I was like, oh, yes. This, yeah. like, great warrior in this battle against the fairies. Like, no, she's the last mortal to have fairy blood in her. Let her die. Let her be eaten by the wild animals. But I will acknowledge that, yeah, I'm a beast for doing that. Uh -huh. But I'm still going to be, I couldn't decently have done anything else because I'm this victorious warrior against the fairy armies. <laughs> so I, that's honestly where my inspiration completely came from. You went, you went much more abstract than I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was like, nope, forget Uncle Andrew's story. I want to know about this little girl who, who's the last, last mortal with fairy blood in her. Fun. So listeners, if you're following along in the books, feel free to... Uh... Do a little remix and, you know, tweet at us your your own uh, personal interpretations in this chapter. So anyway, uh, to kind of finish up, uh, this is a segment that I like and Kristen doesn't care for. But I like to take the chapter as a whole. We gotta rate this chapter. We gotta rate it. Out of fairy godmothers. I thought we were doing out of ancient civilizations. Oh, out of ancient... I mean, we could, we could do out of exploding guinea pigs. Uh, we did guinea pigs the first chapter that yes, I don't want to continue this guinea pigs theme. But these ones are exploding. Yes. And I, ha I had the idea to rate it out of exploded guinea pigs. Ooh, exploded. <laughs> Fascinating. How would you do that? Is it like cupfuls? God. <laughs> okay, let's go back to fairy godmothers. Um, <laughs> so are we rating this chapter out of ancient civilizations? <laughs> sure, since there's an actual list of ancient civilizations in this. Greek. Old Egyptian, Babylonian, Hittite, or Chinese. We have five of them, plus the Atlanteans. So, on a scale from one to six, one to ancient oh, wow. civilizations. Okay. One to six. It's changed my whole rating there. Yeah. Okay, so from one to six ancient civilizations, I would give this chapter, uh, I'll go with my gut instinct and say a four. Oh, Four out of six. Four out of six. What would you give it well, out of five? Out of five. Okay, fine. Out of six, I'll say 4.5. Okay. Uh, because I do feel like there's a lot of development for Diggory in this chapter, and like there's a lot of narrative and a lot of backstory. Uh, there's not a lot that actually happens, and that's fine because these are short chapters, but this entire chapter is just a very short conversation 90% of which is just Andrew talking about why he's, you know, doing a great job and how he's an awesome magician and Diggory being like, I'm gonna punch you. But you love world building. I do love world building. And this chapter is building the world that we already know doesn't have magic in it, but has a link to a magical realm. Yeah. Back into magic. Yeah. Magic is still used as a tool to yeah. get us I, into. I, I still want to be very conservative because I, I have hopes for the book that I will encounter chapters that I adore later and then I can give higher scores to. So okay. I don't want to go and be you like... You don't want to overrate it I don't right want to overrate it right now. Okay. So, okay. 4.5 Ancient Civilizations. How about yourself? No, I mean, I'll give it some Babylonians. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'll give it a fair, a fair Roman Empire. Uh -huh. Definitely, yeah. About the Mesopotamians. No, 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 no. We, we're going Roman Empire. Rhodes, dude. Yeah. Rhodes. This book connects things. I always like the Greeks better. Yeah, but but the roads, Chris. The roads. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm rating this ancient Rome. 
that correspond to a number? Uh, does it have to? This rating system is <sighs> arbitrary to begin with. Yes, but we should make it be able to be understood. <laughs> you are so defeated right now. Um, okay, so for your benefit, I'd give it an 80%, which is a 4.8 ancient civilizations out of 6. Okay, a little higher than me, but yeah. Yeah, but if but you sure. gave it 4 out of 5, that's also an 80%. It's the same. But you gave it less on a 6-point scale, which a, says that the system is Log. It's a logarithmic scale. Uh, I'll, I'll pretend that I understand math for this podcast. So, any closing thoughts? No. No. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Open and shut. Uh, yeah, I'd say closing thoughts. Uh, I, it's hard for me to say anything without going into chapter three, which I sh- this is why I shouldn't read ahead. I know, Because I right? like to do, like time backwards uh compatibility context that kind of thing um but closing thoughts really great closed dream chapter i'm i'm a huge fan of like single room like movies and stuff because i feel like a lot can be said when you confine yourself to such a small window yeah uh so Join us next week for uh, The Wood Between Worlds. Chapter three. Which is a chapter that's probably my favorite one so far. Ooh. I like it a lot uh, because it says a lot of interesting things about the universe this is set in. Yeah, Kristen, if you want to sign us off. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Chronically Colon Narnia. And on behalf of my co-host. Uncle Andrew's godfather. <laughs> I'm Uncle Andrew's godmother. Look at how they massacred my boy. And if you'd like to be more involved, you can follow us at Chronically Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. You can also follow us at Chronically Pod on Twitter. Or you can email us uh, for any old reason at chronicallypodcast at gmail.com. And on behalf of my co host, Uncle Andrew. I'm Uncle Andrew's godmother. <laughs> nope. Yep, yep. Gonna rethink that one. Yep. It is right. You, you have a point, but you will just hover for eternity. And this is a strong beer we're drinking anyway. But really quickly, if you want to go into your thing about uh, sci-fi. Really quickly. Are we running out of time here? Well, I mean, we're not trying to do a three-hour podcast. Okay, but... <laughs> so. Sci-fi... <sighs>